Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad to have you with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Thanks to Chad Benson for filling in for me last week. Jim Garrity is here. Uh, And Jim, I almost felt guilty for coming back. You guys had so much good news about the midterms. I felt like I shouldn't mess with the momentum here, but uh, I'm happy. (laughs) Great vacation. Happy to be back, and hopefully we can keep it rolling here. But uh, I really enjoyed seeing the, uh, the surging optimism last week. So hopefully the last two weeks of this campaign look pretty much the same. Greg, we're glad to have you back. And that kind of superstition, that kind of sense that if you do anything different, you're going to jinx it, sounds like the pessimism of a Bears fan. (laughs) And I can only look down my nose at that now that the Jets have had a four-game winning streak. And uh, yes, I am thinking of purchasing games to the Bears-Jets game later this year. But anyway, (laughs) let's jump into the good news because... uh, Greg, I think you could use all the good news you can get. Yeah, we're going to get smoked by the Patriots tonight. You guys are are 5-2. and two. The Bears game is going to matter, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to matter for both teams unless draft positioning is a factor at that point. Um, but let's get into our, our good martini. And you had so many uh, good pieces of news uh, as it related to the midterms last week when you and Chad were talking about it. But we got another piece of it. And it's not just this race, but it's indicative, I think, of um, of where the momentum really is in this campaign right now. Uh, as a Michigan native, I would have told you this year after the half a dozen or at least half the field of Republicans running for governor couldn't even get their signatures done right. So they didn't even make the primary ballot, uh, including uh, the figure who was supposed to be the leading candidate for the Republicans this year, uh, the uh, former Detroit police chief, James Craig. But uh, in the end, Tudor Dixon becomes the nominee. She's immediately down double figures in a number of polls. From early August, when the primary occurred, until not that long ago. And now Trafalgar, which generally does have better numbers for uh, Republicans, but it's also perhaps the most accurate polling firm out there, so uh, the attention is justified. They've basically got it a statistical dead heat, 48-48. Officially, it's 48.4 for Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic governor, 47.9 for Tudor Dixon, which does not leave a ton of room for the undecideds, which is 1.8%. There's a libertarian at 1.5%. Michigan almost never fires its governor. Uh, Jim, it happened once in my lifetime, and that was a massive upset when John Engler got elected governor in 1990, which was otherwise not a good year for Republicans. But basically, if Tudor Dixon is able to draw even with Gretchen Whitmer, and she's got the momentum there, the attorney general's race is getting tighter there, which would be a great win for Republicans if it can happen. If it's happening there, and we see it happening in some other Senate races and gubernatorial races around the country, you looked at even New York last week, uh, which is uh, looking tighter and tighter. Uh, When these sorts of things are happening, it means that uh, the party out of power is probably going to have a pretty good night come November 8th. You know, Greg, Tudor Dixon getting that close is a good sign. We should point out that this is the first poll in a couple of weeks that has her tied, but the other ones in in, in the interim have not looked that much different. Mitchell Research has her Whitmer up by two, Emerson had her up by five, and Signal, which ironically is a Republican firm, is their best poll in the last couple of weeks, which had her up six. All of that are either within the margin of error or just outside the margin of error. And I feel like if you're Tudor Dixon, you're feeling good because this was not a race that looked all that you know competitive, really through chunks of uh, you know September and even early October. Really, in the last couple of weeks, it has uh, tightened up quite a bit. And that's where you want to be. You want to be getting better as we get, you know, we're two weeks out. Um, I believe that there's a debate this week. I think these are all just opportunities that indicate 
Uh, the Republican electorate is, you know, Republicans are now fairly unified, and the, you know, independents are breaking in the direction of the Re Republican Party. Um, I think you see similar uh, dynamic at work in the Blake Masters Senate race out in Arizona. Uh, I think you can even maybe point to Don Bolduc's effort against Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Uh, for almost the entire year, Maggie Hassan looked like one of the most vulnerable Democrats. There was an expectation that Don Bolduc had kind of botched Republicans' chances, that he was not the most competitive candidate. You know, there's the poll that's had him within three in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there are also other polls that have a slightly larger margin, six points, seven points. Um, but now, you know, it now no longer looks like a blowout. It looks like it's going to be a good competitive race. And it feels like you've seen this just general shift across the direction. I think if you ask me what's going on in the electorate right now, that last uh, inflation report was bad. It really was the last opportunity for Democrats to try to change the narrative. The president is now kind of flailing with this, yeah, the economy is strong as hell, you know, just just not able to say things that get to you know, communicate. Allegedly for a guy, we keep hearing about how great empathy he has. He keeps running around insisting that things are going great, and that's not what people are feeling right now. And so he and the Democrats end up looking out of touch, and they're ham banging the drums on abortion and hoping that's going to do it for him. And, uh, you know, it just, you look at these polling results, people generally have much, you know, are much more concerned about inflation and the economy, gas prices, grocery prices. Uh, I looked up this morning, grocery prices are up 13% over last year. Yeah. Just mind boggling. Um, so you just put all this stuff together. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, it all points to a Republican wave. And I think someone like Tudor Dixon might be the kind of candidate who, you know, might have some challenges, might not be the most natural candidate. Knocking off an incumbent is difficult, but this kind of a wave could might end up being just enough to put her over the top. Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, like I said, uh, Michigan voters don't usually like to fire their governors, but uh, man, if anyone deserves it, it's Gretchen Whitmer. And, and right now, like you said, with uh, Democrats trying to say, ah, you're just wrong, voter. Why don't you see it the way we see it? Not the right closing argument. But hey, uh, they're welcome to keep using it. And uh, maybe it'll work better over the last couple of weeks. So keep at it, Democrats, because voters love being told they're wrong. All right. On to our bad martini now, Jim. And I guess we could file this one under no surprise whatsoever. But uh, also very sobering. And it kind of ties in with uh, one of the things we're seeing in some other surveys in that just under the economy, education is creeping up as perhaps uh, the third most important uh, issue for voters, considering it very important. I think the latest number we saw was about 64 percent. But Axios reporting that test scores known as the nation's report card released on Monday show the largest math declines ever recorded for fourth and eighth graders. Math scores declined for those grades in nearly every state and district between 2019 and 2022, according to the National Assessment of Educational Progress. During those COVID years, reading scores also fell in most states, according to the Education Department, which released the scores. COVID and the resulting school closures spared no state or region. The pandemic resulted in historic learning setbacks for America's children, erasing decades of academic progress and widening racial disparities. Reading scores dropped to 1992 levels. Nearly four in 10 eighth graders failed to grasp basic math uh, concepts. And so on and on it goes. Jim, it says no state was spared, so I'm guessing most, uh, or if not all, states went down. I'd be curious to see whether the states that opened sooner uh, saw less of a decline. I don't see that immediately in the data that I'm looking at here, but I'm sure someone will dig into it at some point. But for an issue in a, in a midterm where the fight is over whether 
parents or the the people who impose these policies uh, ought to be given uh, more control here. I think we know which way it should go. Yeah. Well, there, there's the two little wrinkles of a very grim report. Uh, you might say, ah, you know, it's really bad, but uh, at least we can, you know, make it up over time. We can try to pick up pace, teach them better in the years to come, and, and this will not be such a bad problem in a couple of years from now. Well, you look at the fourth grade math and reading scores, those are pretty bad, steep declines. You know, you just, you, I'm looking at the charts right now. They're going down at a eh, 45 degree angle, <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty, you know, when you, when your classic down one, the eighth grade math and reading scores are almost a line going straight down. That is a steep, steep plummeting drop in eighth grade. And you have fewer years with eighth graders than you do with fourth graders. So they, they're, they're going to be going off at graduating high school, hopefully graduating high school, uh, going off into college, going off into the workplace. And you really want to, you know, like they have less time to make up for this. Um, the other thing I, I think, you know, I, I was chatting with Hugh Hewitt a few weeks ago, and I love Hugh. He's a, a great and astute observer of the political scene. But we got into a discussion about how badly the pandemic had affected America's kids. And I really think that, like, even Hugh Hewitt, who is a man of the right and a very sharp guy, was like, ah, you know, it's not like they went through World War II or something. Like, no, no, actually, they, they went through something that was indisputably traumatic. And yeah, you're going to see it in the test scores. You're going to see it in all kinds of things. I think I've discussed on this podcast before, talking to a, uh, a therapist, child psychologist who works with lots of folks, uh, lots of kids. And, they, you know, by the way, every child psychologist and every therapist has said that their offices have been filled since the end of the pandemic or really even like, you know, during the pandemic. Um, a lot of kids out there, you cut them off from their friends. You caught them off from their routines, from their school, from their teachers, from their classmates. Uh, little league and you know soccer and dance you know recitals and all those things that make being a kid the joyful experience of being a kid unsurprisingly kids were depressed kids got you know were miserable and there's this little paragraph in the write-up about it that i think is just this good summary that children's lives outside of school also changed they spent more time on devices and less time with friends Many families lost jobs and income, at least temporarily, and some children saw their relatives or caregivers die. COVID was just a body blow to Americans in all kinds of different ways. It's just different from a war, which is very bad. No, no, no good. Or, or 9-11 or something like that. But this was something that was bad, that disrupted the most basic functioning of life and human interactions. And it went on for the better part of a year. And it really was two years before schools got back to normal. So no wonder this, like, this is a, this is a, this should be a giant flashing drudge siren level crisis for America. And I don't, and I see hear a lot of parents who are up in arms about it. And I think we saw it in the governor's race last year, and maybe we'll see it in some congressional races this year. And maybe by the way, like, you know, runaway inflation is one of those things that can help this kind of displaces it on the priority list. But man, oh man, you know, schools are not fixed. It's not like, oh, okay, we're back to normal now. And I think that we're going to be paying the price for that decision for a very long time. I just hope the American electorate remembers. I would like to personally thank Randy Weingarten and the American oh. Federation of Teachers and the teachers unions that worked so hard to keep kids out of school as long as humanly possible, even convincing the CDC to reverse policy uh, as to whether it was uh, the right time for kids to return to the classroom. These people cannot be let off the hook for the damage they've done uh, to not only our results in education, but to the kids as well, and even more. Last I heard, Greg, she was going out to Ukraine, and my first thought was, God, haven't the Ukrainians suffered enough? <laughs> exactly. All right, on to our uh, crazy martini now, Jim, and on to uh, the Russians, 
Last we heard from Politico Europe, they were naming Vladimir Putin Person of the Year when it came to environmental green progress. Uh, now they're not so happy with him again. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, on Sunday uh, had telephone calls with his French, British, and Turkish counterparts in which he made unfounded claims that Ukraine might be preparing to use a dirty bomb according to Russian readouts of the conversations. The conversations took place after Russian President Vladimir Putin recently raised the prospect of using nuclear weapons in the war he launched against Ukraine and after Shoigu faced uh, intensifying pressure over a series of disorderly retreats in Ukraine. And so the, the basic gist here is, is that uh, people are now worried that Russia is going to deploy a dirty bomb on its own soil, blame the Ukrainians for it, and use it as a pretext for uh, wider spread uh, nuclear retaliation. So, Jim, I don't know if that was the plan. Uh, good that it got smoked out, I guess, and that nobody was believing this uh, potential buildup for such a thing. But the fact that uh, the Russians would, would float that with what seems to be no evidence, alarming. Uh, they're certainly not heading in the direction we would prefer. Yeah, and this comes back to this kind of recurring theme. Look, first of all, could Ukraine be doing this? I find it extraordinarily unlikely, and everybody else who's watching the war finds it extraordinarily unlikely. If Ukraine were to do something like this, they would almost instantaneously lose all of their aid from the West. The, the, you know, the United States, Paris, Berlin, London... Uh, no Western government could say, well, you know, this is a rough war, so it's okay for the uh, Ukrainians to start setting off dirty bombs in places. Like, that, that is a red line that you can't cross. There's already been, you know, this uh, the bombing attack on the propagandist that ended up killing his daughter, which apparently was, uh, according to, you know, allegedly carried out by elements within the Ukrainian government, which was the very intriguing wording indicating that Zelensky does not completely control the Ukrainian government and or the possibility that there are quasi paramilitary organizations fighting on behalf of uh, of Ukraine that may or may not be following orders and may or may not be operating by the same rules of war and laws of war that the mainstream Ukrainian forces are. Um, but anyway, like, so again, there's, there's no there's that would be all downside for the Ukrainians and, and very little upside for that. And it would probably invite Russian uh, reta nuclear retaliation. So then you look at that, you're like, okay, so this sounds more like the Russians planning a false flag operation or laying the groundwork for that. Of course, once they do that, one, God forbid, someplace in Russia or maybe near the border or something ends up getting irradiated by a dirty bomb. And then, oh, you can't use that place for, you know, decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And then they'd be using it, okay, well, we're going to hit you back with a tactical nuclear weapon. You know, Greg, we go through this every couple of weeks, it seems. Um, Putin will say things about using a... Uh, tactical nuclear weapon. Biden at that Democratic fundraiser just kind of blurted out that we were facing Armageddon. And then he never said much more about that in his public remarks. And then, you know, no, nobody else in the U.S. government knew what, he, knew what he was talking about and said nothing had changed with Russia's nuclear stance. They hadn't seen any new intelligence. They hadn't seen any new indicator that the situation was really dire. Look, I hope that this continues to be I don't know if chicken little is the right metaphor here, but this continues to be us worrying about something that isn't going to happen and or maybe our reaction, maybe our back channel communications keep deterring the Russian military to say, you know what, as much as we think this would intimidate the Ukrainians, this would just outrage the Americans and outrage NATO. This is too consequential. We're not going to press this button yet. But if this really is heading in that direction, God forbid it occurs in November or sometime in this winter or sometime next spring. I wonder if we're going to ask ourselves, hey, we should have done more back in October. That we, In other words, like, what are we not thinking? What are we not doing now that we're going to wish we had been doing 
a month from now or two months from now or three months from now if the Russians really do set off a tactical nuke or they do some sort of complicated false flag operation trying to blaming the Ukrainians for crossing that red line first. It really feels ominous. And what's really weird is that these things happen, Greg, and then like, a, you know, in a day or two, nobody's going to be saying anything about this. It's very strange. You know, if it really is a crisis this bad, that this deserves our full attention. If it's not that much, the president shouldn't be out talking about he had some, you know, transgender activist at the White House or something like that. It was just kind of really odd that this, you know, the president will just blurt out Armageddon and then just go out and say, oh, no, we're back to business as usual within a day or two. It's, you know, either either we're really at a crisis level or we're not. And it feels like somebody's toggling a switch back and forth every few days. Well, yeah, the, the uh, attention span of the media and this administration is about that of a fruit fly, unfortunately. So it's uh, whatever one they think will get them the most attention, the most clicks uh, from the media perspective and on and on it goes. So, uh Jim, I can't sigh yet. It's only my first day back from vacation, but uh, I feel like it's not going to be long. So uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Greg, I'm glad you're back. I agree with your assessment. I do wonder, though, how do they measure the attention span of fruit flies? I think they die pretty quickly. I think they live ah, just okay. a very right. short period say, of time. I'm looking at that. I think, like, oh, do they give them a big book and say, let's see how many chapters <laughs> they get through? Good point. Very well done. Jim Garrity of National Review. He'll be here all week. Tip the waitress. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. They're a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Don't forget about Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Monday, and please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. My friend and former acting ICE director Tom Homan joins me to discuss President Biden's total failure on the southern border. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, we will dive deep into the reasons behind the border crisis and what Republicans need to do once they win back the legislature. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.